0: Good morning, Central. Happy New Year. Well, it's 2015, and so we are looking forward to what, what's coming this year. But I think it's also helpful for us to, to, to pause for a moment and look back and look back at the significance of the year behind us, 2014, uh, as a church. And so one thing I'll say right off the get-go is we spent uh, eight months of the last year uh, formally without a lead pastor, Pastor Gary um, filled in as, a, as the interim lead pastor and, and I was the interim teaching pastor. But we spent eight months of last year officially without a lead pastor. A lot of churches, what's significant about that is a lot of churches uh, begin to slowly fold in those sorts of scenarios, right? People stop coming. It starts to just kind of fade. So a great testimony to you is this is a healthy place, <laughs> All right. <laughs> you weren't here for most of it, so. Uh. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, so the piece that, that's really significant about that is a lot of great gospel ministry has taken place in this last year, and I want us to look at that in the midst of a, of a real transition year. Good fruit has taken place. And when I say good fruit, I, I just mean like the evidence that the Spirit is moving among us. Good things that, that matter and have lasting significance have taken place. Here's an example. Uh, right now at Central, we have 30 life groups. That's more life groups than we've ever had as a church. We have 30 life groups. In Chilliwack and in Agassiz, combined with young adults, we combine those, it's 30 life groups. That's, that's incredible. Throughout Chilliwack and Agassiz, amen, throughout Chilliwack and Agassiz, we have 30 Groups meeting in houses, um, sharing the word together, uh, praying for each other, sharing struggles of life and joys of life, getting to know each other better. It's the church in the home. It's Acts chapter 2. We gather in the big group here. We gather in the small group in homes, and we have 30 of them going on, and we give God praise for that. This past year, in 2014, five people gave their lives to Jesus for the first time. They accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Five individuals did that, and we praise God for that. Last year, there were 10 baptisms that happened here. Um, Last year, 17 people came on as ministry partners this last year. And that's really significant, not just attending church here, but saying, yeah, I'm a part of this. I want to give myself to this. And so 17 became members. We call that ministry partnership. What's really exciting as well, all of that is exciting, what's exciting as well is in this last year, we sent out a, a couple, Tyler and Cheryl Schultz and their girls, um, were sent out as MB uh, through MB Mission, but but out of this congregation um, to missions uh, in long-term missions in Africa. We sent them out. We commissioned them. We gave to them as a church, and even many of you above and beyond gave to them financially to send them uh, off to Africa to uh, to uh, mission work there. Not only that, this past year, John and Bonnie Esau, who have given them three years already to ministry in Thailand, came back for Amina, which is MB Mission Talk for uh, ministry in North America, which is is uh, better than calling it a furlough because that has this idea of rest. And what I gather from John and Bonnie was this time home was not restful at all. It was extremely busy, but it was wonderful. And they just felt a real comfort in being back in their home church for a time. And not only that, they were topped up again financially and sent back to Thailand, where they continue missionary work there and they're um, they're getting set to be a part of planting a church in an area that really needs the gospel message. Beyond that, um, we, we've talked for a while around here and said, you know, that what we want to do is reach Chilliwack for Jesus. And something that's exciting to me, to many of us here at Central, is that we found in this last year, you know, that's not enough. Why don't we go to a new community? And so, um, actually, a, a year ago next week, will mark one year that we've spent in Agassiz. We want to reach Agassiz for Jesus, too. That is awesome. Uh, a couple weeks ago, whenever Christmas Eve was, they had their first Christmas Eve service there, and 143 people came. Um, most church plants are about 60 people in their first year. Christmas Eve... Or less. I've seen church plants of 30 hover at that for for multiple years. 143 people came to their Christmas Eve service. This is an evangelical gospel preaching church in a community that desperately needs it. And people are coming and getting connected there. So for all of those things, I look back at 2014 and and praise God. God is moving in this place. There is evidence of that when we reflect on some of these things. There's so much more to say as well, but I'll cut it off there. That's 2014 in a nutshell. And so we do, we look ahead to 2015 and and ask for God's continued faithfulness in this church and then some, that he would even do more. Um, There's no natural transition to start talking about my grandma now, but I'm going to do that. A few weeks ago, Emily and I and the boys went and visited my grandma who lives in a retirement home in Abbotsford and she has a suite there and we were visiting her and, uh, along the way in that visit, my grandma told us a story and the story was, she was telling us that recently, uh, she, she lay in her bed at night and as she was laying there, she heard the turning of the key in her lock and, and some, and, and then someone, a man was, uh, in her words, he was dressed to kill, he was wearing a tie, <laughs> and he was standing over her bed. And she sat upright, in, in, my, in my grandma's telling of this story, there was no fear, which actually sounds about right for my grandma. She just sat up, she looked at him and said, who are you, and what are you doing here? And then a woman proceeded to stand on the other side of her bed and stand over her, and she's thinking, what's going on? Um, Now the part of the story she doesn't tell, but that I've heard, is that uh, her her sort of life assist uh, button, uh, there was some sort of alarm going off in her unit for quite a time, and they felt like it was time to probably go in and shut that off. She doesn't tell that part of the story, but simply that a man dressed to kill came and stood over her bed, and she sat up and declared, who are you and what are you doing here? And she went on to tell them that, you can't do that. You could give someone a heart attack and they could die, and that would be your fault, she said. Which is true. That's a terrifying thing. I can't imagine. Emily is not very big. She wouldn't be able to defend me in that kind of a scenario. So I don't, I have, like, I have no idea what would happen for us if that were to take place. It would be scary. And yet all she declares is, Who are you and what are you doing here? Well, here's what's fascinating to me as I've been reading this text in John's Gospel as we continue our series on, on the Gospel of John in these six verses, verses 29, six verses, 29 to 34. What we're looking at is, Uh, John the Baptist is declaring who Jesus is over and over again. And multiple times he also declares why he came. So when you see the title, I want you to say it like my grandma. Who are you and what are you doing here? Let me read you the text and you'll begin to see what I mean about who Jesus is and why he has come. John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, it says this, The next day he saw Jesus. This is John the Baptist. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen him and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Multiple times, John the Baptist is declaring who Jesus is and why he has come. So we'll get into that, but before we do, why don't we pray together? And then we'll unpack it. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that you came. And we're just coming out of a Christmas season when we've really pondered that and meditated on that. That that you are the Son of God and that you came to us. Thank you, God, that we can look back at 2014 and recognize some really important things that you're moving among us in so many ways. We give you praise for that, Lord. We recognize that when your spirit is working, um, there is fruit, there is substance, there are changed lives. We recognize that, Lord, and so we thank you for those who have come to Christ this past year. We give you praise for them. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would guard them, and we pray that you would um, bring them up in the faith, uh, grow them in the faith into disciples of Jesus Christ as the rest of us long to be. Lord God, I pray that um, as we've seen many get baptized this last year, that we would see many more baptized this year. Lord, as we've seen people come to Christ this last year, we pray that many more would come to Christ this year. And as many people have uh, become a part officially as ministry partners of Central this past year, Lord, we pray for many more this year. And God, as you have raised up from among us missionaries to go out to the ends of the the, the the earth and to proclaim Jesus to people who need to hear it. God, we give you praise for that. And we give you praise that we can um, that we have the opportunity to reach our neighboring community as well as our own. So God, we give you thanks for those things. And as we study your word this morning, Lord, we want to see who you are and why you came. And so I can preach. But Lord, you change lives and so we pray your spirit would move, that your spirit would impress your word upon our hearts and that you'd use a sinful guy to just proclaim the things that I see in your perfect word. So God, I pray you would teach us, grow us, challenge us and encourage us, edify us, I pray in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So... Right off the bat, in verse 29, we see who Jesus is and why he came. Look, behold, the Lamb of God. That's who Jesus is, who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he came. It's not all-encompassing, but it's a part. It's, it's telling us who he is and why he came, and we'll see it again in the text. But we'll look at verse 29 first. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Lamb of God. Why did Jesus come? To take our sin. I was at a sports store with my son Boston a few days ago and we saw this big mural, this big poster of Sidney Crosby. And with Sidney Crosby was his hockey stick. And if I see commercials of Sidney Crosby or I see him in the game, with Sidney Crosby there is always a hockey stick. In the same way, if those of you who watch Judge Judy, don't be ashamed, you, with Judge Judy is always the black gown, the robe. Like, I wouldn't recognize Judge Judy if she wasn't in that same black judge's robe. It's always with her. Linus in his blanket. Slash wearing a top hat. That's just for a few of you. But Slash always has his top hat. You wouldn't recognize him without it. Well, interestingly enough, for hundreds of years, when, when artists would paint John the Baptist, there was a rule. You always paint a lamb with John the Baptist. So if you were to look for, look up paintings of John the Baptist, you might see his beheading painting, which there isn't a lamb there. there's simply his head on a plate. Or you'll see John the Baptist all right well. Uh, or you will see uh, John the Baptist standing in the wilderness with a lamb beside him. And here's the reason. The most central role of John the Baptist, there's a couple Johns in this story, so we'll call John the Baptist JTB. The most central role of JTB was to point away from himself and towards Jesus. That's the great attribute of JTB, is he would point from himself and to Jesus. The great thing about John the Baptist is he's the guy who got to point out and say, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. What's great about John is that he's pointing people's eyes to something else. He points to the Lamb. That's the great work of John the Baptist. This is language that possibly was confusing to first century hearers, the, the hearers, the original hearers of this declaration where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. Um, Some people might have been confused by that. Some of us may be confused by that. So we want to clarify it. I believe that many people from Israel would have understood what that meant because there's a couple of key passages that would come to mind. I want those to come to mind for us as well as we hear Jesus described as the Lamb of God. The first is from Genesis chapter 22. There's a man named Abraham and God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And so, Abraham, with great pain and with great agony, you know, packs up, right? He packs the firewood, he packs the kindling, he grabs the barbecue lighter. They're going to go up the mountain and he's going to sacrifice Isaac. And they get there and Isaac declares, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? You just hear the agony in it. As Abraham responds, hoping, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. What's so amazing about that story is, right there in the thicket is a ram, is a lamb that is caught. God is requiring a sacrifice to be made. And yet, God provides it for himself he provides the sacrifice himself for them and what's so intriguing to me is oftentimes i've heard this many times people will say i do not want to worship a god who's going to tell a man to go and sacrifice his son that is ludicrous i will not follow a god like that they will say and i say well you know what's so intriguing about that is that's not the story He's called his 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 son Abraham, he's called him to faithfulness and Abraham proves to be faithful and yet no son is required to be sacrificed but one. See, God is the one who makes the great sacrifice. His one and only son is the one that is sacrificed. God, once again, for all of us, provi- provides the lamb and the lamb that is slain is the lamb that is his own son. Again, God provides the lamb where for our sin, for the wrongs that we've done, for who we are, we are deserving of punishment. And yet the only punishment was the punishment he put on his own son. So the only real sacrifice that's made is the sacrifice of himself. And I tell you, that's a God I want to worship. Why? Because he himself sacrificed. He himself faced agony. He himself bore the wrath that we deserved. That's a God worth worshipping. Show me any other religion where the God of that religion takes the sacrifice, is the sacrifice, is pain, dies. That is a faith I want to have. And that's Genesis chapter 22. In Exodus chapter 12, Israel, the people, God's chosen people, are in Egypt and they are captive there and Egypt is lording it over them and will not release them and so God brings plagues to Egypt and these are, these are people who revel in idolatry. These are people who um, throw their fists up at God and worship idols. All sorts of things are taking place in Egypt and God declares in this wicked nation at that time that he was going to kill the firstborn male of everything. But if you kill a one-year-old, unblemished lamb and smear the blood on your doorposts, that son of yours will be spared, it says. And again, what's so fascinating to me about that is God himself spares sons. He sacrifices his own for you and for me. So John the Baptist sees a man coming who's like no other. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That's a lamb. That's a good lamb. I'm glad the lamb came. I'm glad the the lamb showed up by the Jordan that day. And it's significant that it says, who takes away the sin of the world. There are many, even inside Christendom, who will talk about, I'll talk about what this means, but who want to do away with substitutionary atonement. They want to say what the cross reveals and what Jesus dying on a cross means is, it's just love. It shows that he loves us. Is it just a picture of love? But nothing particularly happened there. But James Denny, early in the 20th century, an English theologian said this quite wittingly. It is a meaningless, it is meaningless It is as, here we go, (laughs) it is as meaningless to detect profound revelatory love in a cross of Christ that achieved nothing as it would be to detect profound love in a man who tries to prove his devotion to his fellow human beings by jumping off Brighton Pier and drowning with no purpose in view and no result achieved. What does it do? And yet we see that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died with purpose. Jesus' death accomplished something. So what substitutionary atonement means is that he was our substitute and his death atones for our sin. Atonement means basically that people and God are reconciled only because of what Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross. There's a third passage I'd like you to see about a lamb, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 53, and I've got to believe that, that John the Baptist, this prophet, this last really of Old Testament prophets, um, had to have his fellow prophets' words in view, and they're from Isaiah chapter 53, and they're talking forwardly about Jesus, and they say this, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God, and afflicted, but... All he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you see the purpose? This was not the death of a good guy. This was not simply the death of a prophet. This was the was the death of God for a purpose. Look at the purpose. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It goes on. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's what he has done in his sacrifice. He accomplished it. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified because as we accept Christ, we get His record and we are spotless by what He has done because He is spotless. And He took our record on Himself on the cross and that exchange took place. It happened. We call that substitutionary atonement and it matters. He took on flesh in order to die in our place. That's substitution. And He took our sin upon Himself. That's atonement. Athanasius in the third century said the Son of God became man so that men might become sons of God. Let's move on. Let's look at this pattern again. Who are you and what are you doing here? Let's look at it again, verse 30 to 34. Who are you? Who is Jesus? Jesus is, we see from verse 30, that he is the eternal son of God. Why did he come? To give his spirit. He's the lamb of God who came to take our sin. He's the eternal son of God who came to give his spirit. Look at verse 30. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, it says. John the Baptist, JTB, sees Jesus and recognizes that he came before. You know what's interesting about seeing Jesus come after? Like, John's at the Jordan River baptizing people. He's got a crowd, he has disciples at this point he's a bigger deal than Jesus because Jesus is truly in terms of his ministry is just showing up on the scene and so John the Baptist is the big deal he has disciples Jesus does not at this point we'll see that happen next week um, and uh, I'm lost now and we also see that um, he draws in crowds. People are coming to hear him. John the Baptist is yelling at people that they're sinners and so they're, they're actually saying, yeah, I am. And so then they get baptized, recognizing that they're sinners. That's what John was doing. And so John has this following. John has the crowd. But Jesus comes along and says, here comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He recognizes that Jesus is preexistent. He recognizes um, really the motif of John's gospel John the Gospel writer, John the Beloved, and what he's trying to accomplish is he's trying to show us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He said it at the very beginning of his Gospel, and he says it over and over and over again. He says at the very beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. From the very beginning, when nothing else was, Jesus was there with the Father. We see that. We see it again here. He ranks before me, even though he's come after me, he ranks before me because he was before me. He's pre-existent. He's the eternal son of God. John acknowledges his place. John has the crowd and yet he's confronted with Jesus and he finds his proper place. There's a couple things about John that I want us to see here. John is humble. We'll see that more in the coming weeks. John is also bold. Like Like I said, John yells at people that they're sinners. He, he, he looks people, at people one at a time and points out their sin and tells them about it. And so he's standing there and, and, and people are actually coming. Now this, this is just evidence that, that he is a, a prophet because I've, I've come across people who stand out on a street or something and yell at people and tell them how bad they are and people get out of there. They leave quickly. They put their head down and leave or they throw something. But either way, John the Baptist is there. And he's convicting people. They recognize their sin. He's the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for Jesus. He's priming the pump. He's showing them that they're sinners. And then Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and show them the remedy. So John's there just to show them they're a mess and leave them at that. And John's there. And yet he comes So he's bold, right? But he comes across Jesus. John is a big deal. But when Jesus comes along, he finds his place to be low. He ranks before me. He is above me. He is greater than me. In fact, his disciples just start to flock to Jesus and follow Jesus pretty quick. I think he's good with that. John acknowledges his place and he shows up on the scene by the Jordan before Jesus, but submits to Jesus when he realizes who Jesus is. We're starting a new year and I wonder, is that who Jesus is in your life? Are you bold and are you humble? Do you share Jesus? Do you proclaim Jesus? Do you point people to Jesus, the rescue they need in Jesus? Do you point people that way? And when you come across Jesus and others, are you humble? That's a really interesting pairing. It's a tricky pairing. Many of us, myself especially included, miss this pairing and the balance of this pairing a lot. We can be bold and quite rude. We can be humble and say nothing because, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm being meek right now, you know, whatever. John is certainly bold, but when he, encounter, when he encounters Jesus, oh, is he humble. He points people to Jesus, and yet he also worships Jesus. Is that you? Is that me? Is that who we are? There is a humility in us that comes from recognizing the greatness of who Jesus is. Because when we see Jesus for who he is, man, we're humble. (laughs) It just makes us humble. But when we don't see who Jesus is, we think we're pretty big deals. And so I wonder who is he for you? Is he an accessory? Or is he your savior? We move on and we see that John baptized in verse 31 and that Jesus was one who baptized with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism was an outward cleansing reflecting an inward repentance from sin. John, John, conv- people were convicted of their sin and so they would respond by being baptized and it was sort of this outward cleansing, though not that much cleansing because the Jordan was known as quite a stinky and dirty river, but they would be cleansed nonetheless in this river which really showed their desire to to repent, but it showed repentance and it showed that there was this pointing to a need. He baptized with water and yet one was coming, Jesus, who baptized with the Spirit. And what's different about that is that the, the Christian baptism, baptism of Jesus, is an outward sign of the inward reality of regeneration, which is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a cleansing in us. So we are made clean by being in Christ and then Baptism is a symbol, is a sign of the cleansing that's taken place within. John's baptism pointed to the need. Jesus' baptism meets the need. Verses 32 and 33, we see John continue by saying, um, God told John this, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What's significant about this descend and remain is that's not the way it worked in the Old Testament. That's not the way it worked pre Jesus. See, in the Old Testament, over and over again, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals in the Old Testament to enable them to accomplish particular tasks given by God. So King Saul, for example, the Spirit um, descended on him, but but Saul became a disobedient man, and the Spirit left him. It was it was particularly for a task, and the Spirit didn't generally live in people in the Old Testament. But Jesus was full of the Spirit at all times. The Holy Spirit descended and remained on Jesus. And to Jesus, God gives and gave the Spirit without limit. We see that in John chapter 3, verse 34. It's only when the Lamb has been killed for the world's sins that the Spirit of the living God can be poured out on His people. The reality is that Jesus takes our sin, He takes our sin and gives us His Spirit. N.T. Wright put it this way, only when the temple has been made clean and ready, the temple of human hearts polluted by sin and rebellion, can the presence of God come and live there. Only then. So, on the evening of the first Easter day, Pentecost, Jesus breathed on his disciples, giving them his own spirit, his own breath, to be theirs. John, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 7, said on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. goes on to say, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the way that this works is Jesus still needed to die, needed to be raised, needed to ascend, needed to gift the Holy Spirit to his people. And the way that works is what Jesus accomplished on the cross was the great exchange of our sin for his righteousness. And as that happens, God looks down at the believer and sees not our blotted record, but Christ's spotless record. And as the spotless record is when we come to Christ, we get Christ's spotless record, that is a heart that the Spirit can indwell because it is pure, because it is clean, it has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit can live and flourish and work through us there. See, as the Son, Jesus, received the Spirit Spirit for the fulfillment of his mission, so followers of Jesus now receive the Spirit for the fulfillment of ours. The Holy Spirit is our great helper, our great counselor, is evidenced through the fruit of the Spirit produced in our lives, which fuels our mission as disciples of Jesus in the world. We have a need for the Holy Spirit It is a good thing that Jesus came bringing a baptism of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus came to give us his Spirit within us. Look how R.C. Ryle put it. Pray daily for a great outpouring of the Spirit on the church and on the world. This is the grand need of the day. It is the thing that we need far more than money, machinery, and men. The company of preachers in Christendom is far greater than it was in the days of Paul, but the actual spiritual work done in the earth in proportion to the means used is undoubtedly far less. We need more of the presence of the Holy Spirit, more in the pulpit, and more in the congregation, more in the pastoral visit, and more in the school. Where He is, there will be life, health, growth, and fruitfulness. Where He is not, all will be dead, tame, formal, sleepy, Is anybody sleeping? And cold. Then let everyone who desires to see an increase of pure and undefiled religion pray daily for more of the presence of the Holy Spirit in every branch of the visible church of Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Where He is, there will be life. Where He is, there will be health. Where He is, there will be growth. Where He is, there will be fruitfulness. And where He is not, Everything's dead, tame, sleepy, and cold. The beauty is, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And He came to give us His Spirit. Um, John the Baptist kind of bookends this for us. We see who Jesus is and why He's come. We see who Jesus is and why He's come. And He's just going to wrap it up with who Jesus is one more time. He says this in verse 34, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's what he says. John the Baptist encountered Jesus Christ, and he's seen and borne witness that he is the Son of God. John Stott, in his great little book called Basic Christianity, if you're new in the faith or exploring the faith, I commend this book to you. John Stott, Basic Christianity. He says at one point that people generally respond one of three ways to Jesus. Generally, it's not perfect. But generally, people respond in one of three ways to Jesus. And we see it in the Gospels when people encounter Jesus. They respond with fear and they run away. They respond with anger and want to kill him. Or they respond with worship. and They fall at his feet and give him everything. Now, it's not perfect, I say, because even John the Baptist, who I'm giving great credit to, as declaring that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. If you look at Luke chapter 7, he's in prison and he sends word. Is, is he the one who was to come? Is he actually the Messiah, he says at one point. He begins to doubt why. He had a certain picture of what the Messiah would be. He thought that he would free Israel from Roman occupation, and that wasn't happening. He was simply healing people and talking to people and loving people, and you know the miracles were great, but he he, he pictured it a certain way, and Jesus sends word back, essentially in Isaiah prophecy, of saying, giving sight to the blind, and I'm doing these things. I am the one. So John has some doubt, and yet he's one who declares it and believes it. He falls down and worships him. He gives his life for Jesus. And in fact, fact, uh, is killed in prison because he had been preparing the way for Jesus. But you know what? When we talk about these three responses to Jesus of fear, anger, or worship, you know what I, I don't hear there? You know what I don't see there? Apathy. Or we'll make up a word this morning. Lukewarmness. Do you see it? You see lukewarmness with fear, ah, and they run with anger, ah, or with worship, and that was weird. And then worship, and they fall down and bow at his feet and give him their lie. But you know what's epidemic in the church these days? Apathy, lukewarmness. It's not really a response that we are to see. Revelation chapter 3 talks about a church that is lukewarm and Jesus wants to spit that church out of his mouth because cold water is at least useful for some, a lot of things. Hot water has some great uses as well. and He would prefer that everyone be hot. But a lukewarm church is one that he wants to spit out of his mouth. Lukewarm Christians not just do not not just are not helpful, they are detrimental. The reason is, well, there's many reasons, but the lukewarm Christian is the person who is not humble, does not love people, and so they're the person at work who declares they're a Christian and they're rude to people and they tear a strip off people, who are legalistic and argumentative, judgmental, all in the name of Christ. Christ. But don't have softened hearts because they are not truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe entitled, and they let people know they're a Christian from time to time, but they do not serve the kingdom one iota. It's the people who leave places like this and are rude to their servers because they think their job is more important than the server's job. Therefore, they're a more important person than the server is, and so even though they're a Christian and the server knows that they're going there after church, they think they can be rude to them because they're lukewarm. Their heart doesn't pour out for people thinking that they might have an opportunity to love them and serve them and bless them exponentially. People who are lukewarm are not just not helpful, they're detrimental because they're not on mission. There is a man on our lead team named Alf. And I love Alf a lot. Uh, he's approached me a couple times after sermons and he feels conviction in his heart and we'll talk about that. And he'll talk about this thing that he realized he was holding for himself and he wants to talk through how he releases that to Jesus. And so we'll talk about that. And at one time he said a phrase that has stuck with me. He said, I've wasted so many years being lukewarm in the church. don't want to waste another day. I've wasted so many years being lukewarm. I just want Jesus to mold me and shape me. I want him to teach me with this. He's prodding me. I want to respond now to that. And so it's just this That's the heart of a disciple, right? I'm not perfect. I know that. But I'm hearing you prod me, and I'm going to respond. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to ask you to help me, right? Now he's a leader in our church, this man who spent many years being lukewarm in the church. Now he goes to his welding job on mission because he wants to love people there. I just love it's just a picture, right? It's just a picture. And so if you're in your 40s and you've been lukewarm, you can pray that God get your 50s. You know that, right? If you're in your 50s, you know that you can have a fire lit under you, and he, you can, he can have your 60s. And it's the same for you young people who have been here every day, but have never had a fire. He wants to light that under you because he gives you, he takes your sin and he gives you his spirit. And so if we were to if we were to recognize that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and we are to recognize that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who gives us his spirit, if that doesn't produce worship in you, I don't know what else I can do up here. <laughs> but I know that his spirit moves because he promises to do it. I know that his word goes out with power because he promises to do it. I know that he changes hearts and lives. I know that I'm just a mouthpiece trying to share this with you, but he's going to prod your heart. And what the the lukewarm person is going to do is going to do what they always do. The lukewarm person is going to shrug what I've just said away, bury it down somewhere and not respond at all, because that's what lukewarm people do. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus this morning, this is what we do. We say, yeah, I'm feeling conviction right now. Lord, help me take a next step. Help me move forward in some way. Help me draw closer to you than I have in a long time. I just want to draw close. I don't know what the question is. Maybe it's just an area of your life you're feeling a little apathetic. Lord, how do I move forward out of that? I want to give you every part of me, every part of me, all of me. I want to. How how do we do that? Well, we just approach you. We know that His Spirit moves and works and pros, and so we want to take practical next steps with Jesus. And so I encourage that. Look, if you're if you're exploring the Christian faith and I'm, you feel like I'm tearing a strip off of us, I'm, I'm not meaning to at all. You, unbeknownst to you, you're actually in a safe place. <laughs> We welcome questions and we welcome doubts. We welcome um, dry seasons in faith and we welcome explorations of Jesus Christ. But what I'm trying to get at in this moment is this is routine for many of us. This is a place we go, but it's not a life we actually live. This is a church. This is a group of people. Imagine this number of people as spirit-empowered disciples going out from this place. Humble and bold, giving ourselves to Jesus Christ this year. I believe that God just wants to call us forward to come close to him and take a step forward with him. That's, that's, my, uh, that's my best John the Baptist impersonation, be a bit bold. But I hope that you hear that it's wrapped in love. And it's wrapped in love not because I'm just trying to make it sound loving. It's wrapped in love because Jesus is the lamb who actually died again and again. Do you see it? Well, Jesus didn't die again and again. but God provides a lamb for Abraham so his son didn't have to die. The lamb's blood was shed. In Exodus, the lamb's blood was shed. And for you and for me, Jesus Christ, the lamb's blood was shed so that we could accept him and our sins could be taken away. And as he ascended into heaven and looked down at his disciples, he said, you're going to make a mess of it by yourself, so I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you my spirit living inside of you. And as you humble yourselves, oh, the spirit will exponentially move among you. So follow after me. I will equip you. I will guide you. Listen to the spirit. Follow his word. Follow his teaching. And God will move mightily in your life and mine and in our lives as a church. Why don't we pray? together. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you that you are the one who atones for sin. We have to do something with it, Lord, and we all have it. We all have wrongdoing. So what the Christian faith tells us is that we give that to Jesus and he cures us. He remedies us. He rescues us. He saves us. His very blood, strangely enough, cleanses our lives. And so we rely on the blood of the Lamb here this morning. Maybe some of us for the very first time. Maybe some of us in a way that uh, we need, we just need to hear again because our, 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 our faith has grown so stale. But Lord, you promise us so, more, so much more. And one of the ways you do that is you give us your word that points us to you over again, over and over again. And you, um, you give us a guarantee. You give us a deposit and it's your Holy Spirit, eternal God, giving us a guarantee of eternal life with you and that's your Spirit. And in the meantime, between now and heaven, You empower your disciples to grow, to love, to serve, to be humble, to know you more, to love well, to be a part of a body together that's on mission for Jesus. God, I thank you for all these things. I thank you for the example John the Baptist is to us. I thank you for the example Alf Weeb is to us. I thank you that Jesus is our rescuer. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.